Chef Auguste Escoffier is a culinary legend, but for Michel Escoffier, he was just great-granddad. He used to get caught off guard by the big reactions to his last name. So the chef arrives and the manager says, oh, may I introduce you to Michel Escoffier, the great-grandson of, and he hardly finishes the sentence that the guy says, oh my God, and practically embraces me. What's well, a good thing you were related to him. <laughs> the Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts continues the legacy for the next generation of chefs. Learn more at escoffier.edu. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Faro is one of my favorite grains to cook with. It's hearty, it's chewy, it's got a rich, nutty flavor, and it's an ancient grain. Uh, it was a staple ingredient in which ancient civilization? Hello. Hey, Tucker. Hi, Bridget. Are we talking about grains again? <laughs> Do we talk about anything else? Now, can you name which ancient civilization used faro as a staple ingredient? Faro. I'm gonna go with somewhere in Italy. Ding, 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 ding. Faro was a mainstay of the daily diet in ancient Rome, and it's still popular in Italy today. Bob's Red Mill's organic faro is very lightly scratched, as is traditional, and that allows for a faster cooking time. And you can learn more at bobsredmill.com and use the offer code ATK at checkout to get 25% off your next purchase. Ciao, Tucker. Adios. <laughs> I meant Arriba Derchi. <laughs> I cannot stand food trends. I mean, they really, really bother me. Who gets to decide out there that I should be eating one vegetable over another? It makes no sense to me. And I actually think that it's a conspiracy. Like there's a group that meets somewhere, maybe in the Azores, or more probably in a little room somewhere in a basement. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. So I was watching Portlandia a couple weeks ago, and this skit really caught my ear. Heirloom tomatoes didn't even exist five years ago. Now, eaten like steak. Kale consumption is at an all-time high. Excellent work, Larry. <laughs> and Brussels sprouts are back. Don't know how you did it, Bill. Ah, they sell themselves. Which brings us to celery. Yes, Marty, I'm talking about you. Oh, yeah, doing the best I can here. So your numbers are down. Yeah. Look at this graph. Oh, because my graph... That's you down here. Uh, I don't have that same graph. Oh. Did you ever hear of a thing called Bloody Marys? That is so perfect. I forgot celery was pretty much even a vegetable. I mean, has it always been a punchline? At the end of the 19th century, there's this urban legend that boys in Kalamazoo would show up to dates bearing stalks of celery with a ribbon tied around them instead of a, a bouquet of roses. This is Maya Croft. She's a freelance writer and independent radio producer. She got obsessed with celery. I know that sounds strange, but she'll admit it herself. 
<laughs> it's, it's a phrase I never thought I would hear used to describe me either. But yeah, I guess I have become, after you write thousands of words about celery, I guess you become an obsessive. Anyway, she got interested in celery when she was writing a piece on the history of the city of Kalamazoo, Michigan, a.k.a. Celery City. Yeah, I was writing a travel story a couple of years ago about um, the city of Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is a whole nother story. But yeah, I was researching the history of Kalamazoo and its claim to fame originally was that it was the world celery capital. Like Kalamazoo celery was known all over the country. It was served in the finest restaurants in New York City. So Maya started down the celery rabbit hole. And I came across this book by a British journalist named George Augustus Sala. He was traveling through the U.S. in around 1879, and he talks a lot about celery. Like, he goes to a market in New York, and he notices there is an inexhaustible plentitude of the health-giving celery, which American diners almost incessantly nibble on from the beginning to the end of their repasts. And I'm just like, I'm trying to envision this Victorian table with all these fancy lords and ladies like nibbling on celery seems so weird. And he talks about stewed celery, raw celery, mashed celery. There is, it really comes up in this manuscript a lot. Um, he's on a steamship across the Atlantic and he notices that American women are obsessively munching on celery all the time. And he wonders if they think, you know, in their feminine mind, if they think that celery cures seasickness. So there was all this intrigue in celery that it has these magical powers and and people are really, really into it. Well, my feminine mind says that celery is just tasteless. Maya's feminine mind was curious. She wanted to get to the bottom of this celery mystery. How did celery go from being fashionable to forgettable? So I set out on sort of like a celery odyssey (laughs) and uh, sought out some experts to help me understand what was going on with celery in America in in the late 19th century. And I had some uh, very helpful celery Sherpas accompanying me on this journey. Now, Maya needed to get a good look at how people were eating celery back in Sala's day. She heard that the New York Public Library had just what she was looking for. They have this huge collection of restaurant menus from the time when Sala was visiting the United States, you know, so the middle of the 1800s, all the way up to the early 2000s. A few years ago, they digitized all of these menus and they put them online. And what they found was some interesting stuff. What's on the menu is a website that launched in 2011, and it includes about 17,000 menus from the library's collection that we've digitized and then... That's Rebecca Fetterman. She's a librarian at the New York Public Library. The menus are from all over the world, but primarily they're really... The focus is on New York City, and they range from the middle of the 19th century to the early 2000s. Okay, okay. When you have 17,000 menus and you're scraping the dish data that hasn't been scraped before, you really get a sense of themes that you might have missed. So when you look at the popularity of the dishes that appear over time, we have a button where you can click and it looks at the most interesting menu dishes and also the most popular. So obviously this is hardly a surprise. Coffee is number one. Tea is number two. And then to the surprise of many, celery is number three. Appearing on how many menus? 4,246 menus. 
Okay, so this is a menu from the New York Athletic Club from March 14th, 1900, Wednesday. And it starts off with different kinds of oysters. And then we have soups and then we have relishes. So we've got celery here, white onions, radishes, and then almonds, anchovies on toast, caviar, etc. And what are those prices? 35 cents for celery, um, 10 cents for radishes. And I see caviar for 25 cents? Caviar for 25 cents, yes. So there was a time when celery was more expensive than caviar? According to this menu. <laughs> Celery comes in so many different forms on these menus. I mean, they had celery-fed duckling that was advertised as the, you know, signature entree at the Ansonia in 1907. There was mashed celery, fried celery, celery tea, an appetizer called cold jellied essence of celery. I mean, they were really getting creative with celery. You might look at a few menus from 1900 and see celery and find that really interesting, but it's far more interesting when all of a sudden you realize that of the 17,000 menus, you know, 4,000 of them or more have celery on them. All of a sudden, it becomes an interesting question. Why? And what are other dishes that are so popular? And what was it like to eat out? And how was the celery served? And were there specific utensils used or that kind of thing? So wait, there were specific utensils or dishes for celery? Yeah, and more than one. I mean, the Victorians loved to have specific utensils for everything, millions of different kinds of tiny forks and spoons, but celery was a special thing. If you lived in an upper-class household on the East Coast in the last part of the 19th century, it's pretty likely that you had like some very expensive cut crystal whose only job was to show off your celery. Well, they're grouped by color. So at the bottom, a shelf, we have reds and oranges and then... Believe it or not, the New York Historical Society actually has some of these Victorian-era celery vases in their collection. On the second and back shelf, we have a pair of celery vases. Wait, celery vases. Celery vases. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. It's totally a thing, or it was a thing. Uh, not so much anymore. Um, we still eat celery, obviously, but what we want of celery has changed over time. That's Rebecca Klassen, assistant curator of material culture at the New York Historical Society. They're um, eight and a quarter tall and five inches wide, and they have a foot on the bottom, so... Um, the upper register has sort of vegetative ornamentation um, somewhat resembling celery, uh, which is pretty cool. So I'm looking at a chart of how the Victorian table might have been set back in this time. And you can see there's a designated spot near the center of the table for these celery vases. And so what you would do with these things is you would fill them half full with water. And then you just kind of like shove some individual celery stalks in there with the beautiful green tops still on. So I imagine this looking almost like a bouquet of flowers, but between courses, guests could just kind of reach over and pluck one out and, and munch on a stick of celery. Yeah, it's sort of a literal and edible centerpiece of the Victorian table. Right. And more than that, they were an actual status symbol. Rebecca explained this. So celery was basically a luxury item or it represented status. And so having these celery vases or glasses on the table 
kind of helped accentuate how special celery really was. So a surprising thing about celery uh, that might factor into its special place on the table as well is that it, it's really associated with cold weather, um, and that's when it would be harvested. So uh, farmers would account for a Thanksgiving market and a Christmas market. Um, so it would have been one of the few maybe bits of greenery that you would have at Thanksgiving. Apparently, for like a hundred years, celery was a staple food of Thanksgiving. Like you couldn't have Thanksgiving without celery and olives. You could maybe have Thanksgiving without the turkey, but you couldn't have it without celery. In fact, the thing she said about celery being associated with cold weather was interesting. I hadn't heard about that before, but it turns out that, you know, A.A. A. Milne, the guy who wrote Winnie the Pooh? So he devoted almost a thousand words to celery uh, in an essay that he wrote called A Word for Autumn. And it's all about how celery for him is this kind of symbol of the cold weather that's creeping in. And he says, There is a crispness about celery that is of the essence of October. It is as fresh and clean as a rainy day after a spell of heat. It crackles pleasantly in the mouth. Moreover, it is excellent, I am told, for the complexion. He goes on and on. How, How delicate are the tender, tender shoots, shoots unfolded unfold layer by layer. layer. Of what a whiteness of is the last baby one of all. Of what a sweetness his flavor. Well, wait a minute. There was something he said about celery being white in there. I mean, I know with today's celery, you take the head, you peel away the outer stalks, and you end up with a little pale... They're very tender shoots right in the inside of it. It's white, little creamy yellow. I actually love that part because it's a little bit sweeter than the outer stalks, and you can snack on it. It's beautiful. People throw that away. But, I mean, modern-day celery is green. Was it white? In the late 1800s, the fashion was for celery to be really, really super white. And, like, not just on the very inside, but all the stalks would be either white or pale yellow. Um, because back then the fashion was for blanched celery. And I don't know if you've ever tried blanching anything in your garden, but this technique requires a lot of manual labor because basically in order to keep the celery from turning green, you have to shield each individual stalk from the sun so that the chlorophyll doesn't get activated or, I don't know, I'm not a gardener. <laughs> but right, they do something similar with uh, endive to keep it pale. It's basically keeping, like you said, the chlorophyll from activating. Yeah, exactly. And you have to do that by physically either piling up dirt around the stalk of the celery, or they would place these really heavy, unwieldy blanching boards on top of the celery. They had all these different methods, but blanching was kind of the name of the game back then. And I think this is part of why celery was such like a rarefied like such a status symbol, why it was so expensive back then. Um, that, and it's it's hard to grow. It's vulnerable to all kinds of pests and plagues and kind of finicky in terms of like where it can grow and how much water it needs. So all of this is combining to, to help us understand why celery was such a big deal, why it might have even been more expensive than caviar. But pretty soon, these celery vases start going out of style. So around 1889, 1890, the fashion 
for celery presentation on the table changes. That's Rebecca Klassen again from the New York Historical Society. While manufacturers still produced the the vase kind, people thought it was old-fashioned. It, it was like your grandmother's way of uh, setting your table. Around 1889, 90, critics talked about the old-fashioned celery vases as being incredibly messy. You couldn't pull one stalk out without having the whole thing come out and maybe your immaculate tablecloth could get stained. Or So there were a variety of reasons, but more fashionable people tended to prefer a long dish. Now, these celery dishes are like phase two of our celery-specific tableware journey. I saw a couple of them at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is where I met decorative arts curator Elizabeth Agro. I wanted to find out why they have something like 14 celery-related things in their collection. Okay, so think Age of Innocence. Think of that classic movie, okay, and think of that grand uh, dining scene with the table all laid out completely encrusted with objects. You would be, you know, a Frick, a Morgan. Uh, you would be of, of a, the, the highest aristocratic class um, to be able to enjoy said object. She's showing me a cut crystal dish, maybe six to eight inches long. It looks like this beautiful little glass boat. And this was designed to hold celery that had been cooked or poached. A celery stalk would... Um, you know, like someone who can't fit in their own bed, their feet hang over, I would say top and and bottom would definitely go over the side. Um, you might have a salt dish in front of you or a small that you would dip and crunch in. These celery trays stick around all the way through the post-World War II era. The museum even has a couple of stylized ceramic celery trays made in about 1945 by the mid-century designer Russell Wright. Which, like, I mean, if I saw these things in a shop, I would have no idea what they were for. I would have no idea they were for celery dishes. But people at the time would have recognized that this was just for celery, even as late as as 1945. By this time, celery is kind of becoming less of a status thing and more of a popular thing that every household can celebrate. And then through the Industrial Revolution, it's been now... You know, between that and refrigeration coming in the latter half, 19th century, first quarter, 20th century, you know, we, we now can afford this vegetable. We know how to serve this vegetable. People know how to cook this vegetable, how to put it to table. And so at the mid-20th century, you know, of course, it's going to have this moment at table as, as an entity, as an item. Today, a lot of these pieces are at the wayside at all these consignment shops. And I mean, like, no one wants this stuff. I think we're going to change that after the show. I think a lot more people might start picking up celery dishes. I mean, you know, going into this celery to me is little more than a swizzle stick. That's what I put in a Bloody Mary to make sure it stays all nice and mixed up. So what happened to celery? To It was the star of the table at one point. What, what made it fall from grace? That was my question. And so I wanted to find out why. And I went to the one guy who I thought would know. Polar faucets are incredibly functional. They're hard-wearing, and they feature sprays with some really cool technology. The powerful, precise ring spray is great for everyday cleanup, but for really tough jobs, there's the sweep spray. Its wide blade of water forcefully pushes food off the plate and scraps right down the drain. 
Now, if you need even more power to clean or you want to fill a pot with water super fast, Boost Spray technology increases the flow rate of water by 30%. But sometimes a gentle approach is best. Think of washing delicate fruits and vegetables with no bruising or tearing. The Berry Soft Spray with its wide light spray is perfect for that job. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hey, Proof listeners, the Jewel Sous Vide is featured on the cover of our new cookbook, Sous Vide for Everybody, the easy foolproof cooking technique that's sweeping the world. Cooking with Jewel is hands-free, so while you're entertaining holiday guests or just a few friends, Jewel is working while you get to hang out. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2018 to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2018. Before the break, we were speaking with reporter Maya Croth about Celery's heyday. Yes, it actually had one. And we learned that celery was the it vegetable of the Victorian era. So what happened? Well, I think what happened is like many foods, it was at first very chic and then it became popular. This is William Woyes Weaver, and he literally wrote the book on heirloom vegetable gardening. Uh, He's the curator emeritus of the Roughwood Seed Collection, which is one of the largest private seed collections on the East Coast. And he told me that there used to be dozens of different varieties of celery. If you look in seed catalogs from the 1800s, there was white celery and yellow celery and red celery and striped stalk celery and curly leaf celery. The French have a lot of weird celeries too, twisted stems and and kinky curly leaves. He has a lot of these seeds in uh, the dusty storeroom in his 200-year-old house in the country about a half hour outside of Philadelphia. And you couldn't have Thanksgiving dinner without celery on the table because it, it looks very pretty. I mean, it's something green and it's very inviting. But after a while, it becomes cliche. And food is constantly changing, so we move on to something else. And then we look at seed catalogs from the 19th century and we say, what happened to all those wonderful celeries? <laughs> but they're out there. They were all part of that Victorian eye for ornamenting food, or over-ornamenting food, if you will. But our cooking style changed, and that's probably where celery got left behind. So essentially he's saying trends come and go, fashions change, Industrial agriculture comes in, and American farmers can't really afford to put in all the time and effort to grow those, all those different varieties of white celery. And then along comes this bright green, hardy variety called green pascal. That's what you see in the supermarkets now. And you can grow this green pascal for cheap on a huge farm in California. And then thanks to refrigerated trucking, you can ship it anywhere in the United States. So suddenly we go from having all of these different types of celery to having like one or two. I would say, I don't want to sound like a food snob, but the celery that we get in the stores, it's like one shoe fits all feet. And I've had celery that's golden yellow. I've had celery that's striped. 
Um, and then there's the red stem celery from England. I, I'm probably have eaten about 20 different varieties of celery, and they're like apples. They're all different, and they can be used in different ways in cooking. Today, we basically have one type of celery, right? Actually, William Wise Weaver has been working on creating his own hybrid variety of uh, crossing a couple different kinds of heirloom celeries. He found this 18th century celery that has a red stem, and then there's another kind of celery that's more pink with these variegated leaves. I'll let him describe it. Oh, I was calling it, yes, the Elton John of celeries because, you know, he likes to wear garish glasses and things like that. And it really does pop. I want to get the pink stem pinker and the leaves more variegated. So we end up with a really very attractive celery. Yeah, I'd like to think that Sir Elton would be pretty darn proud to put his name on some celery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, William was very careful to stipulate that that's not the official name. I don't think he wants to get sued, but I don't I think he might be all right. But yeah, I've been waiting for this celery to come out. I don't know. It's been two years at least since I first heard about it. He says it's still five to six years off. But I think he's hoping that by making heirloom celery interesting, he can get people excited about it in the same way that we've gotten excited about like heirloom tomatoes, for example. And I'm hoping that maybe a revival in heirloom celery will happen because people are looking at regional foods, and this is just part of that, that story. We have chefs here in Philadelphia who are just waiting for us uh, that we have enough heirloom plants that we can share with them. I'm not seeing a lot of interest in old varieties of celery, but they're not available in large quantities, so it's like a catch-22 situation. We need to grow more in order for them to know what's there so that they can play with it, and around and around we go. That's what interested me in, in uh, tinkering with my colorful celery, because I thought, well, if I can get this to work the way I visualize it in my head, it'll be a showstopper, and then we can work backwards from that, and we can get some of the other celeries back on the table. But again, how are we going to serve them? I mean put them in glasses and put them on the table the old Victorian way. I think for um, celery to survive into the next century, we're going to have to find new ways of, of preparing it. Uh, there it is. There's the organized push to get us to eat more celery. But it's not the secret cabal of PR food execs that I was picturing or even Portlandia showed. It's just some guy tinkering away in a dusty workroom, and he's trying to make or bring back a better celery so that the chefs can push it on us. Yeah, it really gives you insight on the whole supply chain in the celery world, if you will. And I actually spoke to some really innovative bartenders at one hip new cocktail bar in New York City that have ran into some problems sourcing celery tops for a drink that they're serving. And the way that they are using celery, I don't think any Victorian could have ever predicted. Celery, you need celery. There's very few things on earth fresher than like the freshness of fresh celery, you know, for celery. It's just people don't care about it. You know what I mean? Some people hate it and other people don't care about it. It's like overlooked. But, you know, there's no mirepoix without freaking celery. So that's Dave Arnold. And And Dave may be even more of a celery geek than I am, if you'll believe it or not. I'm, you know, along with Don Lee, one of the managing partners of uh, Existing Conditions. 
on West A Street in the uh, West Village here in New York City. He's using celery leaves in a new drink that he's devised at the bar. And I mean, they're using so many of these celery leaves. Chances are, if you are a bunch of celery tops grown in New York State, you're gonna wind up in this drink. So we have a drink on our menu called the OG Celery. To me, gin and celery are good, good buddies. Really good buddies. And when you add orange, that's like, you know, that's uh, Three Stooges, Three Amigos. Three's Company also had Mr. Furley. I haven't thought about Three's Company in a long time. It's probably not good now that I think about it. We thought we were geniuses that we were going to get this celery and that we were going to use just the leaves because it really leaves are the best. Other, like the actual celery has too much water. It's hard to work with. Uh, we're like, we're going to get this stuff that everyone throws away and we're going to use it. It's going to be awesome. But it turns out that nobody ships celery anymore to the market with the leaves on. So these guys were searching high and low. How can they get their hands on celery tops? And finally, they found a local farmer who was willing to sell them all their celery tops. And these things arrive at the bar on a weekly basis in containers about the size of a pizza box. And they get about 16 of these pizza boxes full of celery tops delivered every week. And if you stack those, that's about the height of me. That's like a, a human-sized stack of pizza boxes. So one box of celery leaves is two and a half pounds of just leaves, no stems. That's 10 bunches of leaves. That's actually Don Lee, Dave Arnold's business partner at Existing Conditions. So each two and a half pound box of celery leaves makes 100 cocktails. We get 16 boxes per week. So we need to go through 1,600 celery drinks per week in order to use our celery. It's a little tough to say what these numbers tell us, if anything, about a rising demand for celery. Uh, Dave and Don did manage to get through most of the leaves that they bought this season. But what I can tell you is that what happens next with these celery leaves is even more interesting. So as we're talking, Don brings out a tank of liquid nitrogen, which he pours into the cocktail shaker, along with the celery leaves and the parsley leaves. And just imagine it's like bubbling and fog and dry ice coming out of this cocktail shaker. This is a technique that they call nitro muddling. Nitro muddling is a technique that uh, I guess I, I came up with uh, which takes a, a kind of an old chef's technique of, of freezing herbs in liquid nitrogen and then pulverizing them to use like to make herb powders and stuff like that. But realizing that alcohol actually stops those herbs from uh, kind of turning brown and tasting disgusting. Okay, so what he's doing, he's poured the liquid nitrogen into the cocktail shaker with the green leaves and he's muddling it, you know, with a standard cocktail muddler. So now I'm crushing up the herbs. The leaves are turning into this like very, very, very fine, bright green powder. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. It looks like something you'd put in your smoothie, like protein powder or something. Then he adds the gin. Gin first, two ounces of Tanqueray. This is the orange syrup. And this really cool acid-adjusted orange syrup that they make there in-house. Four drops of salt. Remember to add salt to almost all of your cocktails. A couple of drops of saline to give it a little bit of a savory touch. I'm just gonna shake this like a demon. And then he shakes it. You have to shake it for a while and also- And he's explaining um, why this drink is one of the least favorite drinks for the bartenders to have to make because bits of celery are going all over the place. And you know, when you're staring at a packed bar on a Friday night, this is probably the last thing you wanna be making. 
Okay, I have to ask, what what does this cocktail taste like? Is it good? Yeah, it just, it looks green and it tastes green. Or I, I asked Dave to describe it and here's what he said. Fresh, 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 punch, punch, punch. Which is kind of accurate, right? Fresh, 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 punch, punch, punch. You have to say it at that speed though. <laughs> I don't think I could keep up with that guy's speed for very long. So Dave's on the front line of innovating celery cocktails, but I don't think that celery flavored beverages are a new idea. There's this other parallel celery story happening in the United States around the same time that these rich aristocrats are buying expensive crystal vases to show off their celery. In the poorer communities, Eastern European immigrants on the Lower East Side are also consuming celery in vast quantities, and this is taking the form of celery soda. So we get Dr. Brown's Celery, which is a soda that goes all the way back to 1868 when it was called Dr. Brown's Celery Tonic, and it becomes Celery, and that's something that's still found in many Jewish delis today. I've even heard people call it Jewish champagne. That is giving it a very lofty, you know, place on the uh, beverage totem pole. <laughs> I think it's a lot more Hamish, a lot more kind of uh, simple and, and, and um, homey of a drink. So that's Nikki Russ Fetterman. She's the fourth generation co-owner of Russ and Daughters Cafe on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And they do, like I said, they do modernized versions of classic Jewish foods, including celery soda. We are looking at our celery soda that we make at Russ and Daughters Cafe. And next to it is a glass of Dr. Brown's celery soda, which we have always sold at our shop. Dr. Brown Celery is old school New York. You either hate it or you love it. It's kind of a perfect counterpoint to the smoky, pickled Jewish fare, whether it's pastrami or whether it's smoked fish. The celery soda we make is sort of an ode to the original old school celery, though I would say it's a much improved version. We toast a uh, combination of black peppercorn, cardamom pods, and celery seed. And then we cook down uh, about seven pounds of celery stock with sugar. And then uh, those get put together, and then we add seltzer. And there you go, that's our celery soda. I just love how refreshing it is, especially on a hot summer day. Well, what I love about all of this is that Nikki is just so excited about celery soda. And that's because it's part of her family's history. Her grandparents and her ancestors' stories are all part of each and every sip. But in the end, celery soda is just a really good and refreshing drink. Yeah, I I think that's one of the things that I was just so captivated by about celery is it's it's got the entire history of our country's development and, and social class and traditions all inscribed on this little stalk of celery. But at the end of the day, it's just a simple pleasure. It's just good to eat or good to drink. And um, what more can you ask for? So Maya, I mean, what do you think here? Are we actually on the precipice of a celery comeback? Well, since I started reporting this story, I know I've convinced at least one friend to go on eBay and buy a celery vase for his home. 
<laughs> so may- maybe, maybe it's poised for a comeback. I sure hope so. Reporter and celery aficionado, Maya Croft. Do you remember those 1980s and 90s romantic comedies? The ones where two best friends finally fall for each other, and they realize that the love they were looking for was right there all along? Well, this episode kind of reminded me of one of those movies. Celery has been right there under my nose. It's always giving, never asking for too much. Maybe it's too soon for love, but hey, I can pay a little attention to it. And everyone loves an underdog. A good comeback story, something to root for. Could celery be the next vegetable to be adored by chefs and bartenders, historians and hipsters? Will celery reclaim its centerpiece status on the dining table? Probably not. But then again, if you'd ever told a much younger me that one day I would snack on roasted Brussels sprouts, I would have thought you were crazy. But hey, they sell themselves. So maybe it's time for me to give Celery a second look, but only because it's my decision and not some secret committees. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, and Jordan Pearson. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is a refreshing celery tonic on a hot summer day and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and Escoffier. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you can't get enough celery and you want to check out pictures of some of the celery vases and dishes or the Victorian-era menus that we talked about, we've put all of those images on our website. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Oh, and one more thing. If you like proof, please leave us a rating or write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. <laughs>